Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. You know what my favorite text is? A waypoint in the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year, and I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com hunt this spring. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more. My body went forward and my left leg stayed where it was. And I just hear this pop in my left leg and all of a sudden I'm laying there and I instantly knew something bad just happened to my leg. We're on the second episode of our Alaska Stories series. These harrowing tales of adventure are hard to beat in terms of excitement and entertainment. As we listen to these, we get a sense, albeit from a safe distance, some fragment of what the storyteller felt in the climax moment of their experience. We always learn practical things from these stories. But stories of crisis, fear, and adventure are internal trial test runs for us. Do you find yourself imagining how you would have responded in a similar situation? And what would life be without difficulty? We spend our lives trying to avoid it, but trials and tribulations consume the human communication experience. We spend an incredible amount of time thinking about crisis. We talk about it, we write about it, we make movies about it, and constantly fetishize our responses to crisis. We've got four wild Alaskan stories on this episode about big mountains, big bears, and a more internal struggle. The very last story on this series told by Steve Brunella is one he's never told publicly, but we decided to include it in hopes that it might make a difference in somebody's life. I really doubt that you're going to want to miss this one. There was just time frozen and me knowing that my time had come. And I had lived a good life, and I was at peace with it. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant. 
Search for insight in unlikely places and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. Henry Gannett became the chief geographer for the United States Geological Survey in 1882 and is considered the father of map making in America. In 1901, he said this about Alaska. If you are old, go by all means. But if you are young, stay away until you grow older. The scenery of Alaska is so much grander than anything else of the kind in the world that, once beheld, All other scenery becomes flat and insipid. It is not well to dull one's capacity for such enjoyment by seeing the finest first. I've been enamored with Alaska for a long time. These stories continue to paint for me the unique challenges of hunting America's last frontier. Our first story is told by Alaskan guide Austin Manilik about a doll sheep hunt in Alaska's high country. Meet Austin. So I'm Austin Manelik, born and raised Alaskan, 35 years uh, living up here and do some assistant guiding currently and kind of like a Swiss Army knife of many things in the, uh, in the hunting industry. So trying to figure it out and, and making a living at the Alaska lifestyle. Eventually, I guess, kind of got there, which brought me into assistant guiding and spending the amount of time that I wanted to a field still um, after starting my family, getting married, and then pretty soon thereafter having children. And then the bills start coming that you don't see, the mortgage, uh, the truck payment, saving up to buy a boat and, you know, fueling the addiction because, you know, boats bust out another thousand is what it stands for. So <laughs> when you kick off a guided hunt in Alaska as an assistant guide, which I am currently working towards my registered guide license. You just you don't know what you're getting into with with uh, someone that's a flatlander from Michigan, you know, or wherever they may come from, or like a very accomplished hunter from Washington. You just never know what you're getting into. So when you start these hunts off, you you can suss someone out pretty good within the first ten minutes. This is the kickoff of the Alaska season for sheep hunters. And I linked up with a registered guide and he flew me out. Then he flew back, picked up the client and dropped him off. And then he he dropped a packer, a very young, um, green behind the ears packer, 20 year old kid. That is the big kickoff, the big show is sheep season for sure. I love doll sheep. Man, I love smelling the perfume, uh, the the cologne of a doll ram. Just any one you can put in your hands is just, it's something magical. My spirit animal, <laughs> really, <laughs> the most <laughs> handsome creature, in, in my opinion, in the world, the white tuxedo with the gold bow ties, you know. They're just cool. So we got there. I had not been to this area. However, the packer had. He had been there the year before. And 
it was kind of the running joke. When I, I sat the packer down, I said, tell me about everything you know about all these sheep, the sheep that were missed, the sheep that were spooked. I need to know everything. Because you can only get, when you're flying in to a, a place, like you can't wrap your mind around these giant mountains. Even with the best aerial mapping, it's just really tough. And then making a decision can cost you the entire hunt. Because if you're going to do a big loop, it can be three days, it can be five days, it could be the end of the hunt before it began. And he said, man, I feel like I am being interviewed on 48 hours like a murder suspect. And I'm like, <laughs> said, hey, buddy, you are. You know, we all hit it off. It was, I knew it was going to be a, a great adventure. And the year previous, he hiked up this, this ridge to get a look into this drainage after a sheep got spooked and he found the ram. And he was coming down the mountain and the previous hunter and the guide were screaming and I believe they shot their rifle in the air. And he looked up, he's like, what's going on? He couldn't see, but a bear was chasing him down the drainage. Um, and then he disappeared into uh, the broccoli, the dog here down low and he popped out. He's like, what was going on? They're like, oh my gosh, you're alive. Like, you had a grizzly on your tail. He's like, really? He had no clue. So, you know, we're halfway through now about and we've had some rough weather. At this stage, we're like a real cohesive unit. We've all shared our stories. The packer told us a story about, you know, that bear charged me the year before, and I got this nine millimeter, and my dad made me these custom loads before I left. He said, you are gonna carry a handgun, and I'm carrying this handgun, you know, for this reason. And uh, he, he got a holster that didn't really fit that great like it fit in there but it, it was it was falling out at any rate we did the bigger loop we come around the corner we find a ram we do a, a critical stock got in and um he missed um the client missed and it was a bummer and the sheep went up and over and i said hey no sweat we still got time we're gonna find him we'll find another one don't worry clean miss i phone scoped it i could see everything it's all right so we wake up we have the coffee and He's like, are we still really in this? I was like, man, we got to hike out of here. This is going to be tough to get out of here. So we bailed off this big shale slide. We were at the back of this basin about 6,000 feet, maybe a little bit less. We dropped down about 1,000 feet down in this, in, into this basin on a shale slide where you can just run down the shale. And basically it's, hey, you need to just stay, just wait until I get down. I'm going to get out of the way. And then you come down to me. And then the packer will come down so we don't kick rocks. They don't roll into each other and you get hurt coming down. So we did the, uh, the mountain glissade down and we don't have any water left. I'm like, yeah, we'll be down in 10 minutes. So we get down. I'm like, oh, look at that. This is, this is beautiful. We're looking at this. We're still up, really up high. I don't know, above 4,250 feet at least. Not a tree in sight for, I don't know, probably five, ten miles, like not even a shrub. And so we're in this kind of broken, rocky terrain with these boulders that are the size of footballs to uh, beach ball size. And there's just a little pocket of water where I'm kind of down and they're sitting up maybe five yards away, maybe less. And, you know, there's a little rise about 50 yards from us, but we can, we can see this whole valley. But where I'm at, I'm down in a hole, but all I can see around me is shale and my, my client, the packer. 
the packer had, when he was coming down, going back to his handgun and his case, his handgun fell out. I made sure I'm like, hey, don't keep one in there. No one ever keeps any rifle chambered. I'm like, I will let you know when to chamber around. And so on a sheep hunt, you're hiking around the mountains and usually don't ever run into grizz. And your rifle is usually on your pack because if you've got it out and you slip and fall, you're gonna drop your rifle. It's gonna maybe bump the scope, maybe not. So you just, rifles are in, okay. And I usually don't carry a, a handgun hunting sheep. And that has since changed after this moment that's coming up. I'm filtering this water out of a diesel. It's a diesel filter. This, you know, diesel filter is like 10 microns or something like that. So it takes a while. We're sitting there and talking and thinking, you know, the hunt's kind of done. We're talking loud. And I'm looking up at them. And the packer has his entire handgun apart. And they're talking back and forth. And he's telling us a story about his dad. Custom rounds again for like the third time. We're like, oh, okay, cool. Right on. And uh, oh, I got 15 rounds in, in this mag and magazine. And I've got another 15 in this one. Oh, okay, cool. You know, and he puts it all back together. A couple cosmetic scratches, no big deal. So, slides the action forward, puts the magazine back in, and like right when I heard that noise, and he just kind of looks at us and says, like, um, he says, uh, uh, bears, guys, bears. And that's kind of where I'm like, hey, sheep, boys, sheep, or like, hey, there's caribou over there, or, you know, nothing threatening over here, just kind of like we're noticing something and be aware. He said it like that, and I'm like, oh, sweet, my client, he has a grizz tag. This could change the whole hunt as well. So I, I put down the water. I kind of trot up to him and keeping my head low, and I'm, you know, I'm maybe five yards, maybe, away from him. And I get up to the rise, and I look to my left. It's a sow grizz with three two-year-old cubs. I look, and as I made eye contact with that bear, full-blown charge and I have seen charges I've seen bluff charges I know when to shoot no one to hold them no one to fold them this bear is coming for our lives I grab my pack screaming hey 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 bear bear no 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 hey it's just like I don't know what came out of my mouth other than the loudest noise I could possibly make I grab my pack by the time that I had done that and screaming, I couldn't turn over my rifle and jack around in and shoot. It was right there. I mean, two, three steps. I mean, like I could have stepped once and touched it with my rifle and tip of the nose. And I had actually, I got the gun out and I grabbed a rock. I, I, I don't know, your mind is just going. I grabbed a rock because I was going to throw that. Maybe a like a diversion or hitter or something as I'm screaming and then maybe get one jacked in as I'm getting chewed on and hopefully someone helps me. But as I did that, what I heard was three gunshots. Now in that moment, your mind isn't thinking, am I gonna die? Is someone going to die? Are we all going to die? You are just like faced with this the realization, something bad, death, mauling, something is going to happen. And I'm, I'm going through these motions of like, you can play it out in your mind, you can think about it all you want. But in that moment, it's just absolute adrenaline, shark eye, life, death, face on. This is the moment. 
And so in that moment, the Packer, he shot eight times, and we know that because he, he counted how many he had left. I heard three shots. It, was, um, it happened that fast. And all I saw around this bear was basically like a halo. And those cubs, those cubs, they all stayed right there on that far knob, you know, 40-ish yards away. They stayed there watching. And when he shot, he shot in a complete halo, it looked like, around this bear. All I saw was rocks flying around this bear at its feet, under its stomach, over its back, over its head. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I only heard three shots, but I saw a lot of chaos going around that bear. I started screaming because she, she had turned and took off running back towards her cubs. And um, I know exactly how close that bear was when she turned and like made semicircle of poop that some of it may have splashed on her, onto her packs like it was a boot length away. So she had spun and done that and just took off. Getting into this, this bear encounter, this packer saved my life and his life and the client's life. It's just no way around it. He, he saved our bacon. So, like, we've, we, we back up, got one jacked in. I'm like, everybody calm down. We're just going to stay right here, and we're going to wait. So we waited until our nerves were, were calm. This is what we're going to do. I need to track and make sure this thing is not wounded, not injured whatsoever, and, and make sure that we, we, we don't, don't have to call the authorities and, and go through with this process because it's, it's very serious, you know, um, shooting a sow with cubs or shooting a bear without a tag. All wildlife in Alaska is um, taking incredibly seriously, and the wildlife troopers don't play. They have all the beans in the world to get out there and save you a... You know, they'll be the first responders and they, they'll, they'll save hunters all the time. But to check you in places you didn't think you were going to be checked. So it's, you really, really have to play by the rules, exactly by the rules, even if your life depends on it. So Bear wasn't wounded. Bear lived. Bear got spooked. We went down the drainage. And uh, wouldn't you know it, on our way out, I looked up and I said, there's the ram that we've been circling. He came back down. There he is. And we snuck over there and uh, shot that ram about uh, six hours later. Said, dude, like it or not, I told you, we are still in this ball game. Anytime you step foot in the wilds of Alaska, you're in the ball game. The timing of that packer pulling out his gun and having it loaded and in his hand was uncanny. I've never been charged by a grizzly, but I know it's something that can never be forgotten. Everyone talks about how fast it happens. Everybody talks about that. This story could have ended much different than it did if it hadn't been for that Packer and his 9mm. Austin runs a brand called Mission Alaska, and you can check him out online and see what he's up to. Good story, Austin. As a parent, nothing keeps me up at night more than the idea of something happening to my children. But if something happens to me and I'm not around to protect them, that's a true nightmare. Having term life insurance for myself is crucial because I can rest easier knowing my children and loved ones can have some financial support even if I'm not there. That's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. Having life insurance just gives me that extra confidence throughout the day knowing that my family 
will be financially cared for if something bad happened to me. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You can be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's meetfabric.com slash bear. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash bear. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter-acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the south. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. Our next story is one perhaps that you've heard if you've been in the meat eater orbit for very long. Do you remember Steve and Giannis's meat tree story? It's so good, it's worth telling over and over, but I have never heard Garrett Smith, or Dirt Myth as we call him, I've never heard his full side of the story, and he plays a unique role in this story. I asked Giannis and Garrett to tag team on this one. So here is their version of the meat tree. All right, Mr. Newcomb. Here comes the bear story from Garrett William Smith, a.k.a. Dirt Myth, a.k.a. Dirt. Steve drew a tag for... A Roosevelt elk, bull elk on a Fognac Island, Alaska. Short flight from Kodiak. I was uh, brought on as cinematographer, document the hunt. 
Remy Warren was an additional hunter. Giannis Patelis, Yanni Chamani, the Eagle, Latvian Eagle, was along as a hunter, producer, storyteller. And Chris Gill was a second cinematographer. And then my buddy Patrick O'Connell was along as a production assistant. We land in this float plane on this lake on a secluded island surrounded by, you know, the wild ocean. We set up our our camp, which includes setting up a bear fence. Uh, we were forewarned that interaction with the Kodiak brown bear was likely, if not imminent. And um, plane takes off, and as as the drum of that that motor slightens more and more, and eventually disappears, you you do have a moment of realizing that you're in you're in a spot much bigger than yourself. And um, without speaking to it, there's a feeling of of clannishness that you uh, you're glad you're there with friends and and coworkers that you know have proven themselves tried and true in the field in similar situations. Remy had done this hunt before, had suffered greatly, had success, but it's just it's it's a uh, it's an island in the landscape that truly defines and tests any hard man or woman on on their ability to persevere through weather and extremely dense vegetation, wet, 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 an abundance of Roosevelt elk, which are amazing, and an abundance of Kodiak brown bears, which are amazing. A fog nag is a, it's a wild place, maybe one of the wildest places I've been. It's got a Jurassic Park kind of a feel to it. Everything's big. The elk are giant. The golden eagles we saw are giant. Sockeye salmon that we caught were giant. Everything seemed to be big there. It's also very wet. It never stopped raining. And I remember walking across hillsides and remarking that it just felt as though you were constantly crossing a stream. Like not only were you stepping in water, marshy grass water, but that it, would, it was always moving. We had a camp in a, in a valley and we had to, to eventually find the elk. We had to climb over a pretty big ridge that took us at least an hour to summit, and then go down the other side of the ridge into a long drainage. And that's where we found, found these elk. You could actually see the ocean from where we found the elk. Well, Steve eventually harvests an elk. Steve has a, has, has a shot and takes down this Roosevelt elk. I had a clean shot, and it died down in this creek. It has one of its antlers uh, broken off from, from fighting but massive body down in this really steep creek bed in the water, which is a pain in the butt. So Remy and Steve and the crew start butchering. The elk is totally dressed and bagged. It's dark. So it's, it's too much meat to pack all the way back to camp, but in the daylight we had either pinned or just remembered there was a taller tree in the landscape that, that kind of stuck out amongst all the dense vegetation. And uh, we start working towards that with half of the elk between the six of us, just to give you a And we're all strong dudes, all, all very familiar with having heavy packs with meat loaded into them. So we pack half of that elk up to this tree and hang it. Now, when you draw this Roosevelt elk tag in the state of Alaska, you get a letter from the Alaska Game and Fish that says... This is an extremely tough hunt. And, by the way, if you kill 
it is almost guaranteed that a brown bear will claim your kill. So get your meat away from the carcass and take the rest of the proper precautions that you need to take to take care of that. So we were expecting to have not altercations necessarily, but encounters with brown bears, especially once we had one, had an elk down. What's interesting is that up until that point, which I'm guessing was four or five days into the hunt, we had not seen a brown bear yet. It takes us a long time to pack this elk out. Six of us pack half of this huge elk out, and we don't get back to camp until I think three or four o'clock in the morning. And uh, because we had had such a late, a long day and then late night, we decided to stay around camp, kind of do a little R&R and, um, you know, dry our gear out. Life is good. Remy still got a tag. We still have half a elk hanging in a, a tree six hours away from camp on a kind of a death hike. So the next day, wake up early. We decided the next day we'll get up first thing, nice and early, and go in there and get the rest of the elk. So we hike over the ridge, down the long valley, towards where we had left this, the other half of the meat in a tree. And we get about 400, 500 yards from this, uh, now we can call it the meat tree, where the meat's hanging. And we're across a small creek or across the bottom of the drainage, um, looking from one side across this creek and looking up at this hillside where the meat tree is. And we sit there for a solid 30 minutes in glass. With binoculars, we survey the tree and the surrounding area to see if we can find a bear. Nothing seems to be there. Nothing seems to be stirring. So we head on in there. We come in there taking the necessary precautions like you do in bear country, especially when you're approaching a tree that has meat hanging in it, which is we have bear sprays drawn. We're making a lot of noise, a lot of hooting, a lot of hollering and so forth. We pretty much march right up to the tree. We get there, we inspect the location for bear sign. And it seems as though a bear has not been there. Miraculously, not shown up after uh, half of an elk has been hanging in a tree. Yeah, we're thinking, all right, half of this day is done. Let's eat some lunch, throw this meat in our backs and get back to camp so we can continue uh, to hunt for Remy's tag sit down in a semi-circle. I mean, it's it's already been a big push just getting to that tree. Everyone takes off their packs and we're just, you know, we're brothers in arms. We're joking and uh, Pat's making these bomber sandwiches. And a couple reasons the sandwiches are funny, but the biggest one is as the sandwiches get passed out, I notice that Steve's sandwich is just a little bit bigger than mine. And I remarked to him, hey, what's the deal? How come my sandwich isn't as big as yours? He says, if you want a bigger sandwich, you need to just go get your own show. That's the last thing he said before Patrick O'Connell, who was boiling water on a stove. And I can still remember the sound of that stove hissing and that, and that pot starting to just shake a little bit as the water was starting to boil. Pat says, hey, did anybody hear that? As soon as he said, do you guys hear that? We all looked the direction. We, we all had heard something. Pat was the first to mention. And it, it wasn't something that was lingering. And then it was like it, there was a sound that Pat reacted to and looked. And we all look over and there's a Kodiak brown bear 
running faster than anything I've ever seen run towards our group. In that moment, everyone seems to get tunnel vision. Later, interviewing everybody, no one else can remember what anyone else did, their movements, their positioning, which is interesting. Everybody went to tunnel vision. But we were sitting in sort of a half circle. Steve was actually laying down on his side, sort of propped up like Jane Fonda doing her exercises, eating his sandwich. And the rest of us were in sort of a half circle around him. Well, here comes this bear. And in that moment, all I can really remember is as the bear is coming towards us, it doesn't really look like a bear. There's a brown mass. The edges of the brown mass are fluffy. They're almost glowing as the sunlight sort of touches the tips of the bear's fur. The fur itself sort of has a jiggly, jello, rolling characteristic to it as the, as the muscles underneath it move and the fur and the fat move across it in almost waves. The center of this brown mass has white teeth and small yellow eyes. I had never, I gotta speak for myself, I had never been in a situation like that where a predator or a life form of such obviously superior strength covering a distance so fast that all this thought process happens afterwards. We see it, all of a sudden it's in our group, under the meat tree. I, my lizard brain reaction was flight. I'm not ashamed at all. I mean, it's it wasn't a choice, you know, fight or flight. I remember the freeze frame of that bear's shoulders and size and speed. And I'm not surprised at all that I, I basically rolled, like spun around and separated myself from the rushing onslaught by a tree, by the meat tree. We knew that we'd have, like I said, interactions with bears. Before sitting down, or as I sat down to have my sandwich, I had specifically taken my pistol, which was in a holster on my backpack, and I had taken it out of the holster and set it down next to me. I also knew that I had bear spray on my belt in a bear spray holster. For whatever reason, I had also two trekking poles that were laid there next to me. But in the moment that the bear is bearing down on us, my brain does not go to the pistol, nor does it go to the bear spray. Instead, I find myself on two feet, standing there like Pete Alonzo, clutching two trekking poles. And as the bear's head is within striking distance, I swing at the bear's face. The next five minutes of the story actually takes about two seconds to transpire. But in that moment, I thought, well, it's gonna roll me over. I might as well go down swinging. When I swing and I feel that I connect, I'm surprised. Then I'm 10 times more surprised when the last thing that I thought would happen was that the bear somehow reacts to this getting touched by my trekking poles. The bear spins almost 180 degrees and turns out of there and leaves our little area. Now, from stories told to me, Patrick never got off his uh, butt next to the stove, watched the whole thing from there. Chris Gill, one of our photographers, stood up, immediately tripped backwards and was staring at the sky as the bear came in and out. Remy Warren made a football-type juke move to go one way and then the other way to, to get out of the bear's way. Steven Ranella never got up, maybe had the bear step on his foot. 
because later his ankle became very sore. Uh, I'm bewildered. I'm standing there. I don't know what's happened. But as the bear is leaving, it almost looks as though there's it's leaving with one of our crew. Giannis grabbed a trekking pole and batted it in the face. Steve could smell its breath. I mean, everyone had their own own moment in time with this massive brown bear. And then immediately also, this is all in a matter of seconds, immediately realized these crew members that I respect and love and w- want to protect are having an interaction with this massive bear and maybe there's something I can do. So I peek around the bottom, the downhill side of the tree. And when Yanni had smacked it in the face, you know, by chance or because of that, well, it decided to get out of there below the meat tree, the downhill side, as I was peeking around. Garrett Smith, somehow as he's moving around the tree, he trips backwards. Like imagine your heels tripping as opposed to your toes tripping. And he fall, goes to fall on his butt and actually lands on the top of the bear. And that sucker clipped me with its massive shoulder and flipped me onto its back. I mean, nothing compares to that first moment of back-to-back. The speed of which I found myself riding a Kodiak brown bear down a mountainside it was, my brain was not able to process that this actually was happening. I mean, when you put yourself, when you choose a lifestyle to test your strength and will against nature often, there's always a part of you that knows at any point a factor outside of your control can happen. And you just hope that you can cope with it and deal with it in a way that it allows you to survive. Well, when I got knocked onto that bear's back, and it, it, was, it only ha- was able to happen because the, the hillside was steep enough. I was, I was far enough uphill, and, and in that matter, had gained the height that its shoulder clipped me on my hip and knocked me onto its back. And instantly, feeling its, sh- its shoulder muscles and its hide, I instantly knew I was dead. I mean, it was very calming, and you know, like in any accident, time stills and slows down. I was totally cognizant and aware that I was riding a, a brown bear in Alaska, and that the outcome was was being you know dropped into the brush and and mauled. There was no there was no there was no mentality that you know maybe I could knife it or maybe I could flee from it or maybe all of it would end up okay. There was just time frozen and me knowing that my time had come. And I had lived a good life and I was at peace with it. The rest of the crew see this happen and think it has me in its, in its jaws. You know, maybe 50 feet later, I mean, a couple seconds later, I fall off this bear and, and then you know, assume that that's when it's going to turn and end my life. And just slam into an alder, and I'm okay. I, like, get on my knees or something, and I tell this, I have goosebumps, and often I do because it's so vivid in my memory. And I see the rest of the crew running towards me, ready to get their brother. 
I run back to them. Everyone's okay. Everyone's in shock, but reacting in a very logical way. Like I said, it happened in two seconds. There are sandwich fixings and parts and pieces spread out all over underneath the meat tree now. Uh, Nobody goes to uh, pick those up. And everybody's pretty shook up, and there's a lot of yelling going on. And a lot of people, you're taught to yell, hey, bear, when you're in bear country to keep the bears away or to let let bears know that you're around. In that situation, when someone yells, hey, bear, um, everybody starts pointing bear spray and guns in the direction wherever the person is looking that just yelled, hey, bear. So we immediately made a rule that no one could yell, hey, bear, anymore unless they actually saw a bear. But we pretty much circled up, collected our gear, and Steve actually climbed into the meat tree and handed down the second half of the elk, which we then loaded onto our backpacks. And then we moved as what you would see a army platoon in an old army movie move through the jungle where um, there's sort of everybody, you know, pointed in, in a different direction and sort of uh, you're making a circle and you got eyes in every direction. And we moved as this sort of group down away from the meat tree, crossed back across the creek, and got out into a big meadow where you could see easily 100 yards in every direction, which is where we probably should have been having our sandwiches and tea in the first place. I can remember that what my wife said when I called her maybe three or four days after the event, and before I could even start ta- telling her what had happened, she could sense in my voice that I, uh, that I had experienced something of uh, great magnitude. It's still hard to imagine dirt being carried on the back of that bear that far. I've been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time in the field with dirt over the last couple of years, and he's a uniquely genuine person. I'd say it would be impossible to not like him especially when you see his work ethic and his continual upbeat attitude. And old Giannis, I can't say enough good things about Giannis either. Thanks for the story, guys. I'm glad that you're alive. Our next story is told by another Alaskan guide. His name is Caleb Martin. He's going to be taking us high into goat country. Meet Caleb. My name is Caleb Martin. I'm a lifelong Alaskan, born and raised, uh, avid bow hunter. I've shot 13 mountain goats with a bow now. I'm a big game hunting guide. I guide Alaska mountain goat, doll sheep, and Kodiak brown bear. I average around 100 to 110 days in the field and solo hunt 90 plus percent of the time. Um, so this year, I, I found out in February that I drew a mountain goat tag in an area somewhat close by to an area I'd been before, but it was kind of the next unit over. Big, steep country, um, wet, you know, mountain goats, you know, they thrive in the southern coastline in Alaska and southeast coastline because it's really wet, steep terrain. They can get away from predators. They can regulate their body temperature, and it's got great feed for them. So I, I booked a flight earlier in the year with a air service I'd used in the past, and he could fly me in there, but he was going to fly me in late in the evening because uh, from his experience, he had found out evening flights in that area, he can normally sneak in between storms. And that's exactly what happened. It worked out pretty well. August 6th, I'm touching down 8 o'clock in the evening. 
Fairly uneventful flight. We saw some goats on the way in, but not in my unit. Landed and set up temporary camp for the evening. And so the, the next day, August 7th, it was drizzly raining on and off, but got in into some goats being so early in the season in August. Typically, people hunt goats more later in the year, but with my busy guiding schedule this year, I only had the beginning of August to hunt this tag. But the consequence of that is that the goats this time of the year are much higher on the mountain. And so, you know, the goats that I did spot that day, I spotted a couple of good herds and a couple of billies, but they were in really far off reaches. And I was, it was kind of starting to set in that, you know, this is going to be a, a kind of above average goat hunt. I've hunted a lot on Kodiak and those areas, you know, the, the tallest peak, you know, you're maxing out at like 4,000 feet. But here, you know, it is, you're looking at five, 6,000 feet, super steep faces, really thick brush. Everything's still live, still green. So the vegetation's super thick. Salmon berries are just getting started. And um, it, it was just kind of starting to be like, okay, this is going to be a grinder, especially solo packing out an entire goat. You know, you're looking at packing out between 120 and 150 pounds, depending on what you carry with you. So when I go into these kind of hunts, I like to carry a lot of different safety gear. And I've learned over 13 different hunts that carrying rock climbing and rappelling gear can come in extremely handy. So I carry a black diamond rock climbing harness, a device to rappel down with me. And on this particular hunt, I carried about a hundred yard climbing rope with me. On the 8th, I started making my way up the mountain. And man, it was beautiful. I just kind of lingered and worked my way up. And it actually ended up taking me about eight hours to get up to the uh, sub-alpine level where I'd seen goats, but not so high to be up in kind of their natural walking paths in that area. And finally, I make it up there at the end of the day. And now I'm about 2,000, 2,500 feet of elevation. And uh, get up there, find a flat spot for the evening with a little trickle of water next to it and threw up tent for the evening and, and called it good and just crashed. And so I slept that night and I woke up the next morning after, you know, making some coffee from a little trickle of mountain water. And it rained, started raining sometime in the middle of the night, rained all through the next night. August 9th, I unzipped the tent and it's just socked in, can't see 10 feet. So some days like August 9th, it was a tent day. I just spent 24 hours in a tent reading books on my phone, looking through my pictures and my videos that I took, and uh, just trying to stay in my little cocoon and not spread scent over or bump into any animals. And it was kind of funny. I unzipped the tent twice that day. And at one point, I had a pretty decent black bear at about 200 yards. And then another instance, I actually saw a billy on the other side of the valley. While the forecast wasn't too hopeful, you know, everything was going extremely well. I was having a very good experience. August 10th came around. I unzipped the tent door and it's still kind of foggy. But I look right where that black bear was the day before. There's a billy standing right there, 200 yards outside of the tent in the wide open, straight from my tent door, straight out. I zip the tent up a little bit more and I just watch him for a bit. And then after a little while, uh, he kind of goes up into the rocks and beds down. So 
I try to make as little as movement as possible and unzip the tent and grab my gear and slip up into the rocks to try to get out of view. At one point, I thought I could come up level with the goat and make about a 70-yard shot straight across, but it might be able to see me, and the wind was a little finicky, and I was like, whoa, just be patient. Why, why are you rushing? It's opening morning. You got to go. It's bedded. You know, just take the long way around, and it just worked out textbook. You know, it came all the way around, out of view, came over the top. I knew kind of where I'd want to shoot from. I knew it'd be a close shot. And so I just started looking around, and sure enough, I peek over to my left, and there, there's the top of a goat's back right there. So I range find it 31 yards, and I could tell the direction the goat is coming. And as soon as the top of its back breaks the ridge, I come to full draw. It takes two more steps, and it's giving me a perfect broadside shot, and it's looking away from me. And I just give it a, a nice double lung, clean break, 31 yards, pass through. The goat turns, spins, goes about 20 yards, and falls over. And it's like 10 o'clock in the morning, opening morning. Got a goat down, solo with my bow. You know, the it rain's trickling down, but it's not bad. That just happened. So that evening, the pilot texted me after he got done with his bear tours for the day and said, hey, I could get you at one o'clock. Can you make that? And I'm like, man, it's only a mile. It's straight downhill, but it's a mile. I was like, no problem. And I even start looking at photos thinking, man, the route I went up was okay. But I remember I, I seen a couple ridges that now that I'm up top, maybe I could cut over a little bit and make an even better route down. So wake up this morning. I'm like, I don't even eat breakfast or coffee this morning. I just get in a gotta go mode, suck it down tight. Everything's on there because I'm going to have to beat some brush. I'm going to have to go down some cliffs some rocky stuff. And I'm going down this other area, and I could tell right off the bat, like, man, maybe I should have stick to the route I was familiar with. And that's always a little bit of a gamble there, too. So I start going down through the brush, and it's getting steeper and steeper. So I'm coming down through these alders. I got one trekking pole in my hand. I got a full goat, all the hide, all the meat, and all my spike camp and gear, and then all my camera gear on top of it. And I'm just pushing through this brush and keeps catching on my pack, catching my pack. And I push through at one point. Well, my pack was getting caught. And when I pushed through, my body went forward and my left leg stayed where it was. And I just hear this pop in my left leg. And I'm just down on the ground on my face. I got all my load and pack and gear and everything on top of me. And my left leg is screaming. And all of a sudden I'm laying there and I instantly knew something bad just happened to my leg. You know, immediately I go back to that internal dialogue. Okay, I'm on a steep mountainside. I'm really high up. I'm solo. I'm 50 miles into the wilderness by airplane. You got one leg. What can you do? But I sat down on my butt, got my whole pack and everything on. And I just start scooting from one alder bush to the other, a little bit at a time. I just get in this, okay, you gotta move. You can't stay here. You gotta move. And I start scooting down, scooting down, going from alder bush to alder bush. And I'm just on my butt plowing through salmon berries that are four foot tall. And at one point, I come out of this thick shrubbery 
and it's just this open face, and there's no alders. It's just wide open, and there's a little trickle of water, a little waterfall going down the middle of it, and it's straight down. I'm at the top of it, and there's I can't climb back up. I got a hundred plus pounds on my back. I got nothing to grab onto, and I'm thinking I can't move. I need to get rid of my pack, or I'm going to fall down this face. And so I had to cut my pack loose, and it was unnerving and terrifying. I, you know, you have like, and at the moment, you know, I'm kind of thinking, man, I've spent all year shooting my bow, preparing. Now my $2,000 bow, I'm about to let rip down to this mountain. But it, you got to come to terms with yourself. Like, Caleb, it's you or the gear. You're about to fall. Like, make a decision. And I let that pack roll. And it just starts going end over end over end. I'm just watching stuff fly. You know, it's going through the trees. But I'm watching it because the bottom line is it's still got my tent and my sleeping bag. I'm hurt. But worst case scenario, I can get in my sleeping bag. I can get in my tent. I have a super bright orange tent for this exact reason. And somebody could come find me if they need to. And I will survive. But I watch it roll all the way down. And then I was able to maneuver and scoot on my butt, get down this waterfall, and finally get down to my pack. Now I'm on kind of this plateau that's about 100 yards across before it drops down again. And so I'm like, okay, I can't scoot on my butt across here. I need to find out, can I put weight on my leg? And if I can't put on weight on my leg, now it's time to determine, do I need to get rescued or can I make this happen? Yes or no? And first, I stand up without the pack. I put weight on the inside of my leg. And I mean, talk about a terrifying experience I've never felt before. Worried that my leg's going to collapse, my bone's going to stick out the side of my shin or something, right? And I stand up, and everything's pretty good. And then I take about two steps, and I put weight on the outside of my leg, and bam, I'm just dropped instantly right on my face. And at that point, I was thinking about ditching my gear, ditching my goat, ditching my goat meat. So that's not an easy decision. Just be like, should I ditch everything and go for it? So I'm like, okay, well, let me just see what's going on. I put my whole pack on and I kind of hobbled a little bit, six inches. I was like, okay, so you can move forward. So I just started doing that. I I took my knife and I cut a couple pieces of alders as crutches, as little trekking poles. And I can move six inches at a time. And it's like, yeah, I can't move fast, but I can move. And then I also was like, man, you got a rappelling harness and climbing rope. So if you get into a hairy situation, rope up, and then you won't at least fall off the mountain. And so I start pushing forward and get down back into some cliff faces. And I come to an area and I'm like, okay, I could rappel from this point to this point below me. I could re-anchor up work my way down a a creek bed about a quarter mile and make it back to the lake and I'm home free. And so roll my pack over and I realized in that moment that my rope was gone. It was somewhere on the mountain above me and I had no idea and I did not even realize that I lost it when I cut my pack loose. And it took me another five hours to get down there from that point. So I finally made it off soaking wet. My rain gear and everything is just completely shredded, but came off the mountain 
missing a lot of gear but had all my meat had my hide had my goat got to the landing strip 10 minutes before the pilot landed so i got back to the orthopedic surgeon and the basic diagnosis was i had a full thickness rupture of the acl i had a tear in my pcl a moderate grade sprain in my lcl and my mcl i had a fracture in one of my bones in my knee and my entire knee was full of uh, fluid from the trauma of not only falling but repeatedly falling down the mountain that sounded painful and stressful it's hard to imagine what it would feel like to have that happen to you that far back and that alone that goat hunting is not for the faint of heart and this just happened in august of 2023 so we hope that you're healing up strong caleb He hosts a podcast called the Alaska Outdoors Podcast that you can find online if you want to learn more about what he's up to. You know, whenever I look at pictures of my kids from the past year or even just a few months ago, I'm so amazed at how fast they're growing up, and then it hits me hard. I'm getting older too. That's why planning for my family's financial security has become a top priority. Making sure we're prepared and having enough life insurance in case something unexpected happens and I'm out of the picture is crucial. And Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to get the protection that's right for your family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents and for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's M-E-E-T fabric.com slash bear. Meetfabric.com slash bear. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter-acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the south. 
The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. Our final storyteller is none other than Meat Eater's own Stephen Ranella. I'm grateful that he told this story, and I think you'll come to understand why he hasn't told it at length before. I'd advise parents to listen to this one first before you decide if it's age-appropriate for your kids. Here's Steve. I spend about, you know, usually added up a month or so in Alaska every year. Most of the time I spend in Alaska, the, the, the biggest block of time I spend in Alaska is when I spend two weeks every summer at a fish shack we have on an island in Southeast Alaska. And, and that's largely where the story takes place. This is a story I've never told publicly and I, and I hesitate to do it now almost the problem for me is as a writer and, and someone who does tv so many of the stories i have i use them as quick as i make them but this this story never really fits in it just doesn't fit in any place it has to do with a guy i grew up with a friend of mine named eric kern we went to school together so we, we different elementary schools because we were a little bit far apart but then they put us in the same, you know, junior high. We went to high school together. Um, I have just all these memories with him as kids. I, I, like, I, like details, you know, weird details. I remember one time me and him were sitting along the Pier Marquette River in Michigan with our girlfriends, and we kind of thought it was raining in a weird way a little bit, and then we realized we were sitting, had a campfire underneath a couple trees that were just loaded with turkeys and there was so many droppings hitting the ground that it made it seem like a weird light rain shower coming through and i remember that his mom bought this heater for their house that burned cherry pits she'd buy these big truckloads of cherry pits and he'd have to go out in his driveway and rake them around in the sun till they got all dried out and she could use them to burn and one of the bigger decisions in my life, he was really involved in. So when we got out of high school, of course, we went to regular college. We both went to regular college in Michigan. And then he split and he, and he, he came out to Montana to do a PhD program. And it took me like, an, I think it took me an extra semester. Yeah, it took me an extra semester to finish college because I kind of bumped around a lot to different schools. And when I decided to go to graduate school, I got accepted with a full ride at Colorado State, but then I got accepted, just regular accepted to a graduate program in Montana. And, you know, all logic would say that you'd go to the place you didn't have to pay to go. 
but Eric came home and he was in Montana and he really wanted me to go to Montana. And me and him were down in this bar, I'm sure it's not there anymore, called Bo Nicky's. And sitting in Bo Nicky's, man, if it was there, I could show you exactly where we were sitting. And he convinced me, based on hunting and fishing information, he convinced me to, to go to Montana for graduate school. And that, you know, changed my life. I met all the, was, I met all these writers and, you know, became a writer and had things happen to me that wouldn't have happened otherwise. It would have been a completely different path if we hadn't had that conversation in that bar. As we got older, you know, I was, I was the best man in his wedding. He stood in my wedding. You know, we got older yet. We had children. Eric had a daughter. We lived near each other. I would oftentimes, you know, stay at his house for extended periods of time. He would come up to my fish shack every summer. Um, and it was just an annual tradition. And we just kind of fell into this habit of just, being friends and not thinking about it much. Eric eventually had this horrible tragedy. And one of the reasons I don't like to talk about this is because Eric survived. He survived by his wife, who's a very, very dear friend of mine. And they lost their daughter in an automobile accident. And it was, she didn't die immediately. It was just, it was the most brutal thing I've ever witnessed. And we spent time down there with them. My wife and I spent time. I spent time down there with them and in a, in a hospital down in Denver. It was just the most horrible thing I've witnessed. And Eric's wife was just like so, you know, resilient ultimately. But it was, it was terrible on Eric. And about a year, maybe a year after this, we're up at our fish shack like we would do Every summer, he would come up, we'd fish halibut. And I have all these pictures of him over the years holding different halibut and stuff. And, and one summer, a couple of years prior to this, he and I had been out fishing in, um, with some other guys, and we were in two different boats. And we were coming back in pretty rough seas, and we finally made it into sheltered water. And the waves were so bad, we couldn't see the boat behind us. And so we're just kind of hanging out in this little sheltered channel, waiting to find out what happened to the boat behind us, make sure they're all right. And I took a mooching rod, so like a big, you know, 10-foot, very light-action salmon rod, and had this little teeny bucktail jig. And I decided to drop it down and see if I could jig up a little rockfish by our, uh, in this little channel and hooked into this pretty nice halibut, about a 40-pound halibut. We had such a riot landing that halibut on that little jig on that mooching rod, and it shredded this little bucktail jig. The only thing left was like the lead head and some thread. And I came back and stuck that bucktail jig in a two by four door frame and it lived there. And it was there that summer following the death of Eric's daughter. And the weirdest thing, man, is uh, at that time we had this at our fish shack, we had this propane refrigerator and it was old and it was always giving us problems. And we had a carbon monoxide detector that sat next to that uh, that sat next to that fridge because it was always giving us problems with the, the combustion element on there. And Eric was up, and our carbon monoxide detector goes off by the fridge. And me and my brother Danny get down there, and we look around, we figure out the problem. Um, I don't want to go into a bunch of details, but this little apparatus had become like kind of discombobulated 
so it wasn't burning efficiently. Got it fixed. The carbon monoxide detector was still fine. Left it there next to the fridge. The carbon monoxide detector wouldn't never went off. But Eric, he refused to sleep inside of that fish shack for the rest of that trip was so concerned about carbon monoxide poisoning that he would not sleep inside of that fish shack, okay? He, in in other words, he wanted to hang on to life with such tenacity that he wouldn't sleep in there. Meanwhile, I'm in there with my kids, okay? And if you want to talk about holding on to life with tenacity, I hold on to my children's lives with great tenacity. And had I thought there was any issue being in that shack, I would never have allowed that my kid to be in there. If I knew it was fine, the detector was fine. But that that always sticks in my head, man, that he wouldn't sleep in there. He slept outside. But then he goes home and there's like so many details of this I'd, I'd give, but I don't want to give just like, I already feel like I'm violating. I feel like I'm violating some level of respect. Just talking about it. There's so many details I'd give, but he goes home and takes his own life. And like that little detail about that carbon monoxide deal just always will stick in my head. So the last place I saw him was there at the shack fishing halibut. And we don't really have any kind of decorations in our shack, but we keep a big picture of Eric in the shack. So every time I go to Alaska, most every time I go to Alaska and I walk into that shack, he's there. And all of our, and so many of our friends from, from those years that knew him well hang out there. And it's like that single picture has turned... Uh, it, it like the single picture in the shack almost makes the shack like a, I don't know, man, like a mausoleum. It, it, it's not overpowering, but it's just there. And, and, and I always have this tight association with, um, you know, that shack with Alaska, with him having seen him there. And it's just, and, and that setting sticks in my mind. Well, I'll tell you something that, that we wrote below the picture. There's this Rudyard Kipling poem and the poem I I memorized the poem and I've always liked it it goes what of the hunting hunter bold brother the watch was long and cold what of the quarry ye went to kill brother he crops in the jungle still where is the power that made your pride brother it ebbs from my flank inside where is the haste that ye hurry by. Brother, I go to my lair to die. And so on the bottom of the picture, we wrote, where is the haste that ye hurry by? And if there's a thing I think about, man, like if there's a useful part of this, if there's a justification for kind of sharing this, it's that you really don't know what's going on with the people around you. And if there's people you're concerned about, you have to pay attention and you have to be more than a detective, right? 
he wouldn't sleep in a room because a carbon monoxide detector went in off in that room. How do you know what's going on with people? A friend of mine lost a buddy of his to suicide, and he, uh, he, he was telling me one day that now when he asks people how they're doing, and they go, good. He said, and I always follow up with, but how are you really doing? And I think that that's, that's important. And I, and I don't always take that advice. But the thing is, when I go to Alaska and I walk into our shack, I'm reminded of that all the time. And perhaps hearing about this, you know, will maybe change some things someone does. I'll tell you that it's the last thing I'll say about it. As, as folks have pieced together the chronology of events, I can tell you that I feel that if someone had called him that morning, you know, and said, like, how you doing? I feel like he'd still be here. Suicide isn't something that's fun to talk about. And honestly, I never thought it would come up on this podcast. But it's incredibly relevant to this day and age. And it wouldn't take long to find the staggering statistics of the people who take their own lives each year. The reasons are too varied and too complex to address right now. But what Steve emphasized is well taken in that as friends, we need to work to be more aware. We need to probe for deeper answers. And we need to stay close to the people that we call our friends. Or maybe the tables are turned. And you're the person that's in crisis listening right now. And in that case, I want to tell you that you are valuable enough and that your life is meaningful enough that if you're hiding some deep stuff, find a way to share it with someone you trust. I personally find incredible hope in the midst of trying times of which me and my family have had our fair share. And that hope for me, I find and a personal connection with God, for me, that is very real, very functional, very powerful, and available to all. I can't thank you enough for listening to Bear Grease. We've all got a lot to be thankful for this fall, and I wish you the best in your hunting. Good luck if you're out there elk hunting, whitetail hunting, bear hunting, squirrel hunting, grouse hunting, whatever you're doing. Be careful out there. Be aware and celebrate the fact that we get to do what we do. Be sure to check out First Light's new whitetail gear. They've got a whole line of stuff that's made for whitetail deer hunters in the south at firstlight.com. Check it out, and I love it. I hope you guys all have a great week, and I look forward to talking to all those folks on the render next week. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. 
Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash beargrease to learn more.